Welcome to Exhuming the Bones, where horror writers talk craft, process, and community. Today we're talking about plot, which naturally for me leads into this idea of setting. So I'm going to go ahead and just suggest that we talk about them both. And I'm sure there's going to be overlaps with both Kelly and David and how they think about plot and the natural places that it leads them to discuss. Before we jump into today, I wanted to talk a little bit about the difference between plotting and pantsing and plancing. So as writers, we have a tendency to approach creating a plot or creating a story from a couple different perspectives. Some of us just kind of jump in and start typing, and that would be what we call pantsing. Plotters, by the seat of your pants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. By the seat of your pants. Plotters, they sit down and they think about what's going to happen first, second, third. What's the outcome going to be? Some people have like a loose outline. Other people have extremely detailed outlines for what it is they envision happening. And then there's right in the middle, plantsing. A combination of outlining a little bit and then just jumping into the story, free writing, and just seeing kind of how it goes. So let's talk about how each of us relates to these words and where we fall on the spectrum of plotting versus pantsing versus plantsing. I am a planter. I generally have an idea of what it is I want to write. I come up with, usually it's the setting that draws me in, and we've talked about that before. But then I have to consider what is it that I want to say as far as theme? What is the major takeaway that I want this story to have? And then it starts unfolding for me. Where do I enter the story? What's going to happen over the course of the story? Who is involved? That means character. What's going to happen to that character? Is the outcome positive or negative? Happy or sad? It all, I mean, I don't outline everything from the beginning. I generally have an idea of certain plot points or a really strong idea of theme. And then sometimes, because I think I'm so drawn to setting first, I will take a trip or I will do research on the internet. I will find out as much as I can about a location or a time period or a place I've heard of that I'm curious about. And I will sink myself into that feeling. I will surround myself with the time, with the essence of what that is. For example, the story that I wrote that was recently published in an anthology called The Lost Librarian's Grave by Redwood Press is called Devil's Oak. And I came up with this story really because I was standing in a very particular place. My husband and I went on a trip to New Orleans, and it was at the end of 2019, so right before the whole pandemic hit. So we went to New Orleans, and I really wanted to visit a plantation while I was there. And I knew it was going to be painful and I knew it was going to be difficult. So I wanted to see if there was one that was more reverent to that Mm. experience and not Mm. just, you know, who hears this fancy house. And yet we know all these horrific things happen there. So I found the Whitney Plantation, which it's actually a teaching museum that exists as a historical preservation location and then to teach others about what happened there. And he and I, on our very last day in New Orleans, Um, And it's probably half hour, 45 minutes north of New Orleans. We just really spent some very special, difficult time at this location, hearing the stories of what happened there, having a very personal tour with one of the tour guides who actually her family member, I think it was her father, was a sharecropper on the plantation after 
slavery was over. Some people stayed and were, were sharecroppers. So it was a deeply personal experience because of her connection, her familial connection to this land. And I remember walking around and just being aware of what it felt like to stand there and to know that so many horrific things happened. The movie Django, um, if you've seen that, was part of it was filmed at the Whitney Plantation. I, ha- I have not seen it. Um, it is, it's difficult to watch, but okay. it's an important story. So many ones that impact us are. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. So I was overwhelmed, to say the least, with this location, with all these feelings, um, walking and standing in the what were called the slave quarters and just breathing in the air, seeing the sun coming through the cracks in the walls and knowing mm. that it was like that, you know, when people were living there, it wasn't a place where people probably felt safe ever. Yet it also felt when I saw the the sun coming through those cracks and I actually took a picture because it was so powerful, it felt hopeful to me. And in some ways, I know that at least in that place, those stories live on. There are books written about that place that are sold there at the plantation. There are statues of children all around the plantation as well that you know you cannot forget in any way, shape, or form while you're standing there what happened. And there are specific stories too to that area that really impacted me. Um, a revolt that happened that was terribly bloody and horrific but important in in the history of this place. So being immersed in all of this history in this particular location, I really started to think, how can I write about this? You know, I'm, I'm a white woman. How can I do that respectfully? Hmm. So I thought, okay, what would a, what would a young white girl have to say about this? That is not from the perspective of a slave owner. I wanted it to be more complicated than that. First, it started with the location, and then I came up with the idea of the character who would maybe discover what some of her ancestors did during slavery times. And from there, walking around the property, I saw this tree that really stuck out to me, and that became the center of the story. So for me, it's very much an immersive experience of what this story is going to be about. How am I going to plot it out? And once I started to write from the perspective of kind of tapping into that feeling I had while I was there and this deep reverence for this extremely painful thing that happened and also an awareness of how can I be respectful and walk that very careful line between telling this story as a white woman from the perspective of this white girl. And then it just kind of wrote itself. I I continued to do research on the property and on the families that lived there. I pulled in some of the very true things that happened that I learned about while I was at the, the plantation but they're little snippets, they're little vignettes, and it centers really around this tree and how the tree is a symbol of her heritage, of her familial ties. And she makes the choice at the end to do something a little bit more symbolic, which is rebelling against the idea of what her ancestors did. Mm, nice. And so for me, it was about the theme of not feeling trapped by what the people have come before you, what they have done. Like a parallelism between her her and enslavement to something and breaking free of it, would you say? Yes. I mean, it's in my understanding. Okay. That's yes. a beautiful, a beautiful parallel that you made. And I don't I don't want to stop your flow if you but I want to just 
the, the idea of you standing there and how you describe the sun coming through, I'm realizing how important it is. You know, we were talking about research last podcast, and it is incredibly important to research. And sometimes you cannot stand physically in a place. But when you can, I think there's so much more power in that you are actually taking on a perspective that you didn't before. You can describe so much more. Even you love sense, I think. I actually don't know if I have talked about that, but that's not untrue. I very much pay attention to those things. And being a Reiki master, I'm super sensitive to energy. So um, standing there felt like I was absorbing things in a way that I couldn't really explain with words. And then I had to think about how can I explain this in words as a yeah. writer? You know, how, how do I capture everything that I'm feeling, which was just so much. There was, there was terror and there was beauty and there was pain and there was history and there was healing. And I hope I did it justice. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were, you got into an anthology and I, I'm actually super intrigued now by the story, the Reiki master, or if you want to maybe commit to talking about it in a future podcast, how that informs your writing, because I think that would be fascinating. I'll just say um, a little bit about it. Reiki is uh, energy. You know, it's um, energy healing is what it is. And it's it's kind of interesting to be involved in that world, but also be a psychology teacher. So I'm, right. I'm immersed in science. And um, the place where these things meet is is really in the medical community and in, in nursing um, there are locations around Cleveland, actually, that include, you know, the bigger hospital systems that include Reiki healing. No way. That's so, that's interesting. Yeah. So there is actually research backing up the, the practice. It's still growing. You know, it's um, there's a limited number of studies. But as somebody who feels energy um, from the perspective of wanting to heal, it's just more of an intuitive way of thinking, I guess. You know, when when you're meeting somebody for the first time and you start to understand their personality and the ways that they use to communicate and how it just feels to be in their presence, whether they're encouraging or discouraging, whether they use humor or, you know, the strategies that they use to communicate, this is like another layer that Mm. goes along with those things. But you can especially feel if somebody's in pain. Mm. physical pain, emotional pain, but also if they're incredibly loving and giving, you can kind of feel a sense of warmth around them. So for me, it comes in temperature, uh, warm and cold. And if you've ever had a a leg fall asleep, Mm. um, you get that like fizzly feeling when the blood starts to flow back. It it crackles like that um, is what it feels around me. One last question to become a Reiki master, right? Is there... um a body of, of work that you can like consume, or is it just that you, so you have to learn from somebody else. And so there's different levels of Reiki. There's different uh, schools of thought of Reiki as well. And then to become a Reiki master is when you can start teaching other people how to, how to do it. Very cool. Just another way to get into a story, get into a character. I love it. Thanks. I think that's really like your story about it is uh, about the devil's oak is really interesting because like so many times we find horror in the mundane or we use horror to get over our own trauma, let alone like someone else's. Because obviously what experienced there was horror in and of itself. You don't even have to write like a supernatural horror. There's an otherworldly force. The horror was just humans being human. Just what you were talking about really reminds me of a lot of Aaron Mankey lore episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, Laura's a podcast, and for those of you who aren't aware, most of his stuff is a lot of anthropological study. 
Yes. And a lot of times it's just the anthropology behind Bigfoot sightings or Mothman. But then he'll go into stuff that actually happened. And by actually happened, we mean like humans did it. The lobotomy cases when doctors were going up and down the eastern seaboard, Waverly Hills Sanatorium, H.H. Holmes. He goes into the horrific of humans. And it's interesting the way you have it spun is that. At, at least what I'm getting, it's like a weird mixture of that old horror movie Skeleton Key, kind of mixed with uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s uh, PBS show, Finding mm. Your Roots. I um, love that show. Yeah, so it's fan. got <laughs> it, it's got like a little bit of that feeling like that's kind of just the, uh, the the mental pictures I'm getting just from you describing it. It's rough going through that trauma, but also like being in that space and like what you constantly say about you being an empath, being able to absorb all that information that's around you. You know, it's interesting, this train of conversation isn't something that I often talk about, you know, being in a classroom, but maybe that's why it's so important to talk about it here. I really strongly believe that land holds a memory of whatever happens there. And there are places that I can go like the plantation, I wasn't sure how I would feel when I got there. And I was just very aware and very reverent and very much soaking up what I, what I could pick up and, and what I was learning too from the people I was standing around. But there are other places I can't go. And most of those places I, I can't go, I can't get physically close to, we don't know exactly what happened there. Mm. And you know, you wonder, because it's hard to imagine what could be worse than a slavery plantation. What could be worse than that? But maybe it's because so much time has passed. Maybe it's because like the woman who was leading us around was a descendant of people who had been there before. And just that act is so incredibly healing. And the intention of the place now is to teach and to heal. And there's statues everywhere just recognizing um, not just what happened there, but like the Middle Passage and, you know, so many other events that are involved with slavery that truly there there was there was a shift in in energy toward one of hope and healing and that's something that fiction is is so good at doing i know we name drop uh, stephen graham jones a lot but his book the only good indians the title is a take on the saying the only good indian is a dead indian what happens in the story is someone isn't a good Indian, and they end up paying the price for it because nature exacts its revenge. And, and it's specifically tied to land in that yes, book. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's really interesting. I think if I would have read that book at a earlier stage in my life, I wouldn't have gotten a lot of the cultural references. It's, it's pretty self-explanatory by the title that someone hunted something and it wasn't a righteous kill. And that goes back to the Native American aspect of the good harvest, which is you ask for permission, you never take more than half, and you never take the first one you see. I don't think if I wouldn't had read some books previously written by other Native American authors before reading that, that I would have had that connection. There were other references in there too, that people who are just uninformed and are just like, oh, it's a book and it's horror, I'm going to read this. 
that might be the first time they're hearing about it too. You think of when Watchmen, the mm-hmm. series Watchmen, not the comic book, but the new TV series on HBO first came out. There was this huge confusion of, whoa, 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 this, this Tulsa thing actually happened. And that was a lot of people, even people who are black and living in America, that was their first time learning about this. Or yes. mm-hmm. the new series by Marvel, Miss Marvel, talking about the Pakistani and Indian partition. That's a lot of people's first time learning about that, too. And then you start to go down this Wikipedia hole of learning the information for yourself that isn't fictionalized. And you're like, oh, this is this is so much worse. I guess that's the two prong approach for fiction is we're there to educate, but we're also kind of there to provide some sort of healing salve. And I think you did that pretty well, as far as like what I can tell of what you're saying about the devil's oak. I always equate everything to something else. And when you were saying about there's some places you can't go, Mary, and then, you know, why could I go to this place, you know, where these horrible things happened? And I, I think of almost like the earth as like a, a body, skin, scars. If it's, if it's a wound, if it's still open, if it's infected, you know, you, you personally, you marry cannot go there. If it's a place that's healed over and if there's scar tissue, you are able to experience that in some, at some level that is, I don't understand necessarily, but that's a way that I'm seeing what you're describing, which I think is, it's how I, how I personally make sense of, of that picture, which is it's pretty cool. That's such a powerful yeah. way to describe it. I think you're right. Yeah. That feels right to me. I love to hear your process because I feel like everybody, well, other people might think, you know, well, all my process should be like that, but it's not, but it gives an idea to people, you know, oh, I can go someplace I'm interested in. And honestly, as you were speaking, I was also thinking like, okay, I want to write about, you know, some like wonderful getaway. I think I need to set a story in, you know, Costa Rica or there you Disney go. World, Disney <laughs> World. We're going to have a Disney World slasher movie. <laughs> I could I could set be set in Florida and have to go there. See now you have an argument to make. That's exactly. the family. Like we, we need to go to this place because I need to do <laughs> research for my book. Mary <laughs> said so. And then you can also take ideas for settings for places you've already been and maybe uh, take a trip back there, not physically, but just like mentally. There's an old Mark Twain quote that goes, Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow mindedness. And very cool. I think the way you went about it, Mary, is the best way. There's a huge shift in how plantations, especially ones that are still standing, function. And one of them is a teaching museum, not a wedding venue. Authors like Robin Wall Kimmer, who's a botanist in uh, New York, She's a professor. She's not a horror writer, but in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, she has a excerpt about Wendigo. That is some gnarly, like, yes, I'm like, like, okay, are we, are we in a horror book now? Because her, she's normally in the realm of the proctor, of the teacher, of the instructor. And then that she goes into a little first person novelette about her meeting with Wendigo and it's, it's gnarly. Explain what that is for our listeners, because a lot of people might not know. So a Wendigo is a Native American spirit. Essentially, you might've seen it in, I think it was in an episode of Buffy, but it's been in Supernatural. It's been in Grimm. And generally the Wendigo is a curse and it's a curse on someone who in the dead of winter, when their stores were low, decided to partake of human flesh. And the partaking of human flesh 
curses you with insatiable hunger and you grow pale skin, you become really emaciated, grow antlers like an elk or a deer. That's pretty prevalent. The elk antlers really sunken in eyes that sometimes glow. Um, It was pictured in a horror movie. I think it came out in 2020 or 2019 called Antlers. That was 100% Wendigo. It's just hunger incarnate. Robin Wall Kimmerer takes that in a really interesting new sense. I mean, most times it's just, oh, it's a creature flick and it's it's a Wendigo spirit. That's all you got to know. But she really takes it as it is hunger personified, just like the old kaiju films with Godzilla. Godzilla is a avatar of evolution. He's evolution incarnate. The Wendigo is hunger incarnate. Robin Kimmerer talks about it and the movie Antlers depicts it as it's not just a physical creature that will eat your little innards. It's coal, it's oil, it's the opioid epidemic. It's certain parts of society that just squeeze and squeeze and squeeze and squeeze until there's nothing left and they're never full. And they'll just keep squeezing you until there's nothing left of you and then they'll just move on to the next thing. I'm not sure uh, how pervasive it is, but Raman Kimmerer is part um, of the Anishabe tribe, which is like the, the Great Lakes. So it's definitely in like the Northeast and part of the Midwest. I've heard about it having a connotation in the Great Lakes region and then Plains, I believe. And I've also heard it talked about in some communities. And I'm not sure how accurate this is. I'm just remembering this from conversations. But beyond the the more specific way that you're describing it as kind of an aspect of collective consciousness or unconsciousness where people can unintentionally be a part of this just because of where they're living. And it's like a greater spirit in a negative way that can start to influence people and how they interact with each other and how they think about using resources and things like that. And it almost Mm. becomes karmic, like it's a, a cycle. And if we don't break it, if we're not aware of it, we don't start behaving differently. It causes our destruction. That's yeah, that's that's definitely something that uh, Robin Kimmerer talks about. Really, the only way to break the cycle is to stop feeding it. Otherwise, it's just never going to stop. And even if you break the cycle, it can metastasize somewhere completely else. It's just that thing that's never going to stop all feeding all encompassing. It's just you might burn it away for a little bit, but it's always going to creep back in even in a place where it wasn't before. It's a really interesting horror aspect, and I, I'd love for more people to um, to discuss that. I also wanted to, because I spent a lot of time talking about my connection to this plancing idea, and Kelly, you seem to have a similar approach, except different at the same time. Like When we were talking about it prior, it was like, I enter the conversation from one direction, and you enter from completely opposite, yet we both describe ourselves as plancing. So I wanted to hear from you and how you think about yourself with regard to that process. We both we both do the who, you know, what, where, when, and why. And as I was, you know, looking over our notes, I was noticing that setting is so important to you. And I, I love this story that you gave, because now I have even a greater understanding of, of why and how maybe I could even try that, even though that's not my natural bent. So even though I'm going to talk about my natural bent right now, I would definitely love to try another way. And then when we talk about David's, maybe I'll try his way too. So I just wanted to talk about the idea of starting instead of with setting. So you, you kind of start with, I'm going to either in my mind or in my physical body, go to a setting and kind of enter the story from the setting. 
I enter the story from the the what if, which is often a very basic way. I mean, a lot of new writers are told, you know, if you don't know what to do, ask yourself these what if questions. And there are lots of what if questions you can ask. I was also going to talk a little bit about plot types. To be brief, I'm going to kind of weave them into the what if question. There's a disagreement about the number of basic plot types. I've settled on seven. I love that number. So one of the seven would be overcoming the monster. Okay, that's really obvious, right? Like if you heard that plot type and you're trying to think up a story, you already have kind of a little recipe there. If you're going to put overcoming the monster into your what if framework, you could say something like, you know, what if a huge monster shark, you know, swims up into a, a highly populated beach area? Well, that is Jaws. Okay, so Jaws is overcoming the monster. For my one of my personal works, I said, what if a person could hear other people's thoughts? Now that again is like a very basic, you know, that's tele I'm talking about telepathy. That is the the basic what if. And then I move from the the what if into the who, right? Because it's not very interesting. What if someone could hear thoughts? So then I say, Well, who would that someone be? Well, what if a mutilated woman telepath what would it be like for her so she's physically mutilated and she hears what we all would keep inside you know if if you've come across someone who is physically disturbing to look at you if you're kind you will carefully hold your face you will hopefully smile but we cannot control necessarily what thoughts go through our head so i thought i started with the what if and then i adjusted my character to make it even more interesting. You know, what if this mutilated telepath, you know, she hears everyone's thoughts. And I actually gave her amnesia as well, because I thought it would be fun to wake up from an unconscious state with amnesia. And of course, where am I getting that from? Well, I'm getting it from Stephen King's The Dead Zone. I'm getting it from Horns. But I'm also getting it from kind of like you, Mary, I had brain surgery. And I woke up from an, an unconscious state and, you know, was disoriented. So I, I, I did a little bit of all of it. And even how you were describing your story. And then David said, it sounds like this other story. And I believe that's because, you know, what we put into us, it all gets churned around in there <laughs> and then it comes back out. So that's my, my what if, right? That's my what, basically, right? That's the what. And then I gave the who character. And I haven't gotten to setting yet. It's like my last thing as opposed to your first thing. What I usually do is I say, where would I like to spend the next six months? So we writers, if, you know, I guess a, a, an average time for writing a novel might be six months. Okay. But if it takes longer, well, I want to spend my six months or longer in a place I want to be. So I chose for the particular work I'm talking about, I chose a Caribbean cruise liner. David might like, I don't want to use the word contradict me, but there's never any hard and fast rules. So I know that David's going to talk about how setting is kind of like really, really a character in itself. And I don't mean to, to go against that. I think in some plots, the setting is tied, it's connected. But I think in the, in the one example I just gave you, it wasn't so much connected. She could have been on a cruise ship or she could have been, you know, someplace else in a, in a city. She could have been an art gallery owner. Um, all kinds of options. I simply chose the setting that for me was the most fun. That's kind of my in to the story. One of the things about why I'm still talking about plot types and our what if and our planter, right? Plotter, pantser, is that a lot of times in the saggy middle, I feel like these plot types can rescue us. 
So mm. if I'm, yeah, if I, if I'm not sure where to go, like I, I may have started out as a total pantser, which I know King pants is his whole way through, but you, you could start out as a pantser and then say, I need some help. And then you could plot for a little bit with one of these plot types until you get kind of out of your hole and then abandon it again. Um, and that's what makes the planter, right? We we do whatever we need to do to get to the story. So I guess I just want to talk about one other plot type because there are seven. I want to talk about two. I said overcoming the monster. And I want to use an example that Stephen Graham Jones that David brought up. I loved uh, My Heart is a Chainsaw. And so one of the seven plot types is rebirth. The definition of rebirth is a little less obvious than overcoming the monster. Rebirth is that a, something happens to somebody and it, it changes them. It makes them a better person. So the way I see, and this is a spoiler a bit, I just want to say that before I keep going. If you haven't read My Heart is a Chainsaw, delete me for the next two minutes um, <laughs> or mute me for the next two minutes, I mean, that's the right word. So this girl, she goes through a situation that makes her a better person. So My Heart is a Chainsaw would be an example of rebirth, but obviously it's a slasher horror book. It's also overcoming the monster. So the place I think I want to end and land in terms of how I am kind of similar to Mary, but different is that the best stories, I think, take advantage of multiple plot types. And I think they take advantage of pantsing, plotting, planting, and then and then we're going to talk about free writing, like stream of consciousness from David. So you can do all three in one long work if, if that's what works for you and, and be free to do it. I love the fact that you're recognizing and, and you, you're outwardly recognizing because we should maybe always start with this idea that we all share what works for us as individual writers, but that doesn't right. mean it's the right way. There, there is no one right way. And there are so many other wonderful writers that we know that have different ways than the three of us. And so like you were talking about setting and how, you know, even though that's my way in, you maybe feel uh, more free to change that up. I know writers who they'll take a very familiar story and then I'll plop it into a very unfamiliar place. And that makes it so much more interesting to read. It's like discovering a whole new aspect of the story just because it's in a different location. Absolutely. And, and, you know, here's the funny thing about the story that I was talking about. Why did I put it on a Caribbean cruise line? It was because in my life at that time, the pandemic was just, you know, gearing up. I lost a Caribbean cruise. I had a cruise we paid oh. for and I couldn't be, I couldn't do what you did, Mary. I couldn't physically go there. Right. Which as authors, we should, if we can, you know, go there and do that's the best research, but I could go there in my imagination. And so I spent, you know, while we were in the pandemic, I spent it in my imagination on a cruise ship. And even though there was a horror element, because that's what we love, that's what I love. I still had plenty of pina coladas. I had, you know, Caribbean drums playing in my head and, and uh, it was a good time. Nice. <laughs> and you have a good time, David, with your free writing. I think it's like very playful. And I don't know if I'm right about that. I kind of like, I'm so interested to know like how your process goes. I think you're right. You mentioned Stephen King as a pantser, and that was something I didn't know. There's some of his uh, shortcomings that I've heard throughout the years of, oh, he's really bad at endings. And in It Chapter 2, he makes a nod to himself, I swear, because he always like puts himself in there somewhere. And Bill is a horror writer. While he's in an antique shop, he's talking to Stephen King, who's like the antique shop clerk. And he's like, yeah, I didn't like the ending. And I'm like, oh, that's got to be poking fun at himself. And I will say I'm that's pretty great. I'm pretty bad at endings, too. I, I'm just thinking back to like 
every essay that I ever did. And it's like, make sure you have an intro paragraph and an outro and blah, blah, blah. And like, I would have like this really great meaty body. And then my ending would just be so rushed because it's like, well, I got to end. So here's the end. I feel like Stephen King does a lot of that with his longer stuff. There's always a shark that he jumps. And if you don't know the reference for jumping the shark, it's a say reference to like an old, I think it's Happy Days, where Fonzie jumps a shark. And that was like the key point in that TV series where it was like, okay, this show's off the rails. It's in decline. And <laughs> King does a lot of that in his stories, mostly towards like the two third endings, so like the third act. There's always it's oh, it's just aliens. That's what it is like it. The demon clown. Oh, it's an alien. OK, I guess it's an alien then. Or in his book, Cell, all oh, the cell phones turn people into zombies. OK, that makes sense because brainwaves getting fried and then like two thirds of the way in the book. And now the zombies are smart and have telepathy. So pantsing is really fun you can get into but you can get yourself into a lot of trouble Stephen and, King will admit that he he well he has admitted that he admitted that the stand he was completely oh, no pun intended at a standstill he could not figure out how to end the stand and he said he it was one of those moments where he almost gave up it was just this impossible wow. problem and he I don't know how many days he walked or if he, he shelved it for a minute and just did very unusual for Stephen King didn't write but he, you know, begged the whatever gods he prays to for the ending for the stand. And it finally came to him. And I will say that I've read the stand through, I don't know, I think three times. And I can see now when I go back, like at the ends of some of his chapters, I've, I believe I can recognize him weaving in what would then become the ending that I can see that he did not think of until later. And so that's the issue. Like if we, pantsing is great. It makes you so unexpected and, you know, twists and turns, but then you have to deal with the fact that, you know, you're going to write yourself into a corner and you got to get out. Yeah. And that's where you're like, uh, the whole magic is in the revision idea <laughs> comes in. I mean, he has no choice but to revise. Absolutely. I... He's got to put that back in. Right. I mean, I, I have kind of the same problem. I, I plot a little bit in the beginning, but it's mostly like the kind of characters I want. A lot of the plotting is just so I have notes to keep the characters straight as I'm writing them. There's one piece I'm working on and I went back into my notes from like a year ago. I'm like, oh, this was a really interesting plot point where I wanted these two characters to intersect and interact with each other. And then I'm reading what I've written, which was a lot of what I would call pantsing because I didn't really have much control over it. It was the character who was taking the reins mm. and I was just kind of letting the character drive the story forward. And then I'm looking back at, at my notes of what I want the plot to do. And I'm like, Oh, that isn't going to work at all of where the character is in the story. I think that's something that can happen. I, I know we talked about character a lot in the last episode, but like setting and plot is as mercurial as the characters. And I think it's it's a weird headspace to be like, I had no control over the characters. You're you're the writer. You have total control. But with pantsing, it really um, it really frees you up and you just kind of get in the headspace of the character. And then as you're going through it, random plot points will just happen. And you're like, well, that person's dead now. And I. I did not mean for them to die, but that's what happened. And that's I and that's what's really fun about pantsing is you can be really creative. There is a little plotting that you want to do 
before so you don't completely derail yourself or even after like nothing says you can't write plot after you've written the plot because then you have that note to go back to instead of having to read your whole manuscript over again to be like okay where did i leave this character in the third chapter because we had a jump in the fourth and now i'm back to them in the fifth and you don't want to get your continuity errors all jumbled up it's a fun little mix i think that's why most people say they are plancing which if i'm right is just a mixture of plot and pantsing. Yep. you yep. are right yeah <laughs> i mean I'm, I'm definitely more pantsing than plot just going back and rereading some of the stuff is that is not where i meant to take it at all it really stinks when you want to take it in another route and you don't know how because then mm. that means there's a big chunk of your story that you just have to cut out and it, it, as an author and a writer that's really hard to do for me i just had to do that recently because i'm trying to get a word count to be a little lower and instead of just completely deleting whole sections i just saved an extra copy i mean that's what's so great about computers nowadays is we don't have to just rip out a whole chunk of a manuscript and just throw it in the trash we can save another copy it sounds like it results in a lot more killings of darlings than that's the phrase you know, i kept thinking yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i gotta kill a big darling you killed a big yeah. darling David. i mean didn't the stand he in like the third act or something he killed like half the cast of characters didn't he he did kill quite a few off. Yes, he did. But also in the stand, that was even longer. I mean, there there was there are several versions of the stand because he it was so long. And even what we ended up getting was so long. I believe like once he became uber famous and then you can do anything you want, he was able to re uh, re-release it with the full, like what he had intended. Mm. I do want to talk a little bit about setting because I love settings. Like settings are just like they're so fun. For me, they're like another character. I, I use food analogies a lot, and I like to think of settings as kind of the salt and pepper that's mm. in your characters. Your characters are great on their own. They should be. But you just need that little bit of spice to bring out different parts of them, different notes. It's always fun to see characters in other settings. Maybe you have a character who's got a lot of bravado, but you put him in a setting where he's slightly uncomfortable and you start to see those little bits of humanity poking through. Like the characters mm -hmm. are more well-rounded. They got that little extra mouthfeel in food terms. <laughs> uh, and I just, I, I, I always have a lot of fun with them. I want to say I struggle with it a lot too, because you don't want to have too many settings because then the reader just gets overwhelmed with, well, either A, keeping all the settings straight, which I guess that's why most fantasy novels now have maps, thanks to like Tolkien and George R. R. Martin. Every, every fantasy novel has a map because it's impossible for you to keep these names and places and directions straight. But then you have all these characters too. And if every setting is like another character, your cast has grown from like four people to like 50 and it's a little overwhelming. And not only is it overwhelming for the reader to keep straight, they mean a little less. I was thinking of, again, Stephen Graham Jones, but in this case, Mongrels. Mongrels makes a point that there's probably easily two dozen settings in this book because the characters move around a lot. They're very transient. But most of the settings are, it's a house we're renting or it's a trailer that we're living in. And the settings in his books are either outside, because there's a lot of nature, 
in that book or inside of a car or a trailer. You could easily say, oh, well, then that's just three settings. His settings of like multiple trailers and multiple places you're living in. I mean, these, these characters easily live in like 12 different states throughout the whole book, but he doesn't go into a whole lot of detail of each individual state. He's just like, Florida, it's always hot. In Oklahoma, there's just too much sky. And that's like all you get and that's all you need. And I think that's really good because you could get so bogged down as a reader if there's like a dozen plus settings or places. Can I talk about Mongrels for a minute? Because I just finished it thanks to you, David. I yeah. finished it last night at like four in the morning. Oh, wow. Nice. <laughs> I, I did. I know. You got me onto this. And then if I am sound tired, it's why. Um, I don't know if I have this exactly right, but I believe that he they never were in a hotel room until, and this is a spoiler again, if you don't you know, mute it, if you've not read it and you want to read Mongrels for the purpose of teaching the the whole point of mongrels right was kind of like a building's roman or coming of age that he needs to change right he needs to become a, a werewolf and so they're in all these places how you said they were in you know trailers they were renting a house they were in cars but the last scene the ultimate scene they're in some place new he used and i so if he didn't do this on purpose then i'm thinking mm. he should have do you remember like the, the where the protagonist eventually turns yeah. into a werewolf is a hotel room it's the first time they're in a hotel room and he gives a reason for that right it's because the brother and sister who had been taking care of the protagonist just you know split off in kind of a beautiful the, he had found a, a, a wife and mm -hmm. so now it's just his aunt and him and that would be a good reason for them to be in this new setting right like so yeah that you thank you for showing me mongrels but that's yeah. even making me think like he was so smart if that's what he did on you know with intention to have that setting pop up at the very end that and you would think they would have several hotel rooms right because they're so transient but they couldn't afford it mm -hmm. so i just yeah i wanted to I think, jump in there yeah I, I i think that's a good point of it's not just setting working off of characters it's also working off the plot I mean, Absolutely. plot characters and setting are so interconnected it's absurd but I, I i think that's a really good point there's lots of settings that can help drive plot forward or can help hold the plot back or hold characters back to show and exemplify things happening in the plot like yeah someplace new something's happening to you that's also new it really helps exemplify that and yeah i didn't catch that so that's Oh, well, you really know, cool. it was four in the morning just last night. It's very <laughs> fresh, David. <Yeah. laughs> you know, we're talking a lot about the complexity of story. And I'm just thinking about how sometimes plot can be way more complex than just the one storyline that's going on. What if you have multiple storylines? What if you have multiple timelines? That's something that I tend to do a lot. I'll write in like dual timelines. And I, when you were talking, David, I was thinking, you know, when you're expressing this horrible idea of having to kill your large darlings. That happens to me a lot because I'll go down the rabbit hole with a, a whole different timeline than I was originally planning to, to tackle. And then I find myself overwhelmed. And now I have too much material. And now I have my word count is just outrageous. And now I have to either get rid of a whole timeline or have to figure out a way to, to narrow it down. So how do you both keep track of your ideas because these things can get really complex. 
you made me think of, I have a file whenever I'm creating a novel, there's the novel file, there's a notes file, but there's also the cut scenes file where when mm. I'm killing those big darlings, okay, I'm actually not fully killing them. I'm, I'm putting them somewhere else like, for a while. I can relate to that. Yes. And I, and I think maybe I'll use them in another story. Maybe I'll change things and I'll, yeah. So that's, that's something you made me think of, you know, keeping the story straight. I, since I had brain surgery, I always kind of make a joke that like they took out some stuff and they, you know, it's not quite the same. So my, my ability to keep stuff straight isn't just as, you know, that's an excuse perhaps, but I actually use um, a software that I came across. I was so pumped. It's called the brain and um, it's actually the brain.com. You can find it. It's free and they have a paid version, but it has like these bubbles that, it's hard to describe on a podcast. So I guess I would just have to tell our listeners to check it out. You can keep your character name straight. So like the brain can be open while you're writing. So as you create a new character that you may forget, or if you create a scene that Mary's talking about, or like maybe a wormhole that you can just write a note or two, plug it into the brain. It's, it's very user-friendly and intuitive and that way you have it. So even though I do, ha I used to have just notes, like I used to have all these notes where I was trying to keep them straight and I would use headings so that I could at least jump to the place where I had a question. The brain makes it easier. I have a, a little bubble for uh, setting and then under that there can be sub bubbles with their other settings. And so if I need to check, oh, you know, was the brewery that I referred to on, you know, Blake Street or Sackett Avenue, I, I have, it's like, snap of the fingers it's right there so the brain would be my my suggestion for keeping your head together i have to say i remember the first time you mentioned it and we were talking about planning i think this podcast and you're like i want to talk about the brain and i was like you have my attention yes let's let's talk about neuroscience i was oh, so yeah. excited <laughs> i realized that was something completely different but when you showed us just to maybe add a little bit of description for for our listeners it's very it's very visual it looks like a mind map kind of, but I can see why they would call it the brain because it kind of mirrors neuronal connections, you know, how, how one thought can lead to another thought and it just makes it really visual. So some people might really love this as a way to kind of keep track of their ideas. Yeah. And you got it. It's they, they call it mind mapping software. So mm -hmm. you, you already familiar with that, which for me, that was all new, but yeah, that's exactly how they advertise it. Yeah. I, I use, I've used something that's kind of the same. I have like three notebooks full of this sci-fi novel that I've been trying to write and trying to figure out how to end. And it's only the first one and I'm planning on it being more and the word counts too long and et cetera. But it's like three notebooks, like full of like notes and stuff. And I had a bunch on my cork board, but I took the notes down off my cork board because the notes weren't being useful anymore. And for a while I was using another mind map, which has also been called a thought web or a bubble outline. I used something that was back in the early 2000s called FreeMind, which is another free-to-use software. It was on SourceForge.net. And I have no idea how I came across this because this was like, I found it back in like 2008. And it was super clunky and it was really cool. Like it, it uses a lot of the mind mapping stuff like the brain, like you have your main bullet point and then you can click on that and it expands down into the branches and you can click on that and it goes down. 
Freemind was a lot clunkier because it was just one big web on one page. And if you wanted stuff to be in one link, you had to actually like drag it over. And it was just like drawing a mind map or a thought web on a piece of paper, but it was on a computer. So obviously there's like a lot of like mouse moving and clicking and it just took up way too much time for me. So I stopped using it. But then after you showed us the mind or the brain, I'm like, oh God, I gotta, I gotta use that because that <laughs> is, that is way more intuitive, way more user friendly. I will admit I haven't used free mind since like 2010. So if it's gotten better, I don't want to disparage them because they did have a lot more updates since I stopped using it. But I, I really like that idea because I'm coming across the same issues. Like once your work hits like over 30,000 words, you're going to start getting the tiniest details mixed up. Like what you said about, oh, is the brewery on Blake Street or Block Street? Was the sign out front of the ice cream place red? Or did I describe it in like neon blue or something like that? I've come across that a couple of times. Uh, Kelly, you showing us how to use the brain in like 30 seconds. I was sold on that. But everybody likes it something different. You know, what you're describing, it's great that you're describing free mind also because minds work differently. So mm -hmm. someone else might find that that right. way of having it kind of all on one screen, always kind of there for you, they might find that to be more helpful. I have friends, writer friends who swear by Scrivener and other packages like Scrivener. And I've tried them and I they're really cool. I, I will admit they're really cool, but I'm so old school like you, David, I have just journal upon journal upon journal. And sometimes I have stories split up between journals and I'll mix them up with other things. I'm like, you know, oh, wait, where did I write this one little tiny note that I really need right now? <laughs> oh, yeah, so, I, I do that. It, it's terrible when you mm -hmm. lose like a piece like a vignette or something in like just whatever scrap of paper you happen to have <laughs> ready at that time. And you're like, right. You're like, okay, where was that? Well, it was concerning this. So it should be in this journal, but it's not. I have notes on napkins. I have notes on, there's post-its everywhere. I have a big cork board right behind my computer here. I have one on the back of my door. There are, you know, pages ripped out of magazines that with images of people that look maybe somewhat like the characters I'm trying to develop. I'm, yeah. So I, I'm a very visual person, but I really like to have that physical stuff I can touch. So, but then I also will take it and translate it into a Word document and Excel spreadsheet. And so that way I have it organized and I can word search when I'm looking for a particular note, like, wait, what color did I say this character's eyes were, you know, or, or mm -hmm. um, what was their last name? I only said it one time in the whole book, but now I need it again. So yeah, that's just the way that I function. And I think the more that we can pay attention to our own natural processes and become aware of what works for us, the better we can be. And certainly we can try all these different suggestions but I'm a huge fan of helping people figure out what works for them specifically. I do right. think I found one thing that every writer absolutely must have because Tell us, we're, we're 100%. It? <laughs> well, it's the cork board because oh, yes. you have it, David has it, and I have it too. And I will tell you that until I got a cork board, I was locked, <laughs> I, you know, putting up those pictures. And I think I have Joaquin Phoenix. Am I saying his name right? Joaquin. 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 Phoenix. See, I, so I'm basing a character on his visual appearance, but I can't say his name right, but he's on my corkboard right now with yeah, nice. maybe stick those notes. <laughs> you could have a corkboard and just push all your notes onto there and it'll just become this like two foot, you know, sticking out of notes and 
Oh yeah. <laughs> mine mine was like I, I had like the like the full on like detective slash serial killer thing going. Like I had like old yes. thread going all <laughs> it over. It was like a beautiful mind, right? Yeah. <laughs> it it was again i took it down because it wasn't serving its purpose i had it to keep my character straight and they they live so much in my brain already that i'm like okay they're they're full resonance up there i don't need this to keep it straight i need this for plot because all those like main plot points is where i get lost in like what i did and everything sometimes we end up what we think is working or what starts out working it stops serving us but we're like no I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to hold on to this Scrivener because I spent so much money on it. You know what I mean? And we can't do that. Use it if it works. And if it doesn't, you abandon it and look for something else. Never feel bad for doing that research, for taking a little field trip or for doing the plotting or the cork board or whatever. It's still part of the process. It does take time, but never like make yourself feel shitty for doing something that's going to help you in the long run even if it's not getting words down on the paper. You might have a 10,000 word count goal every day for like a week, which I've tried to stick to. And the only way I stuck to it was keeping myself accountable and writing it down and like signing my own name. And then when I thought I had it and I could do that and I stopped doing it, that's when I fell off again. Do the physical stuff, even not the metaphysical, like typing it on a computer or whatever, I mean, the physical stuff, like Mary, you say that works for me a lot. Listen to yourself, listen to other people, and don't be afraid to do the work if the work isn't just typing words out or writing stuff down. You can do other stuff and still be part of the writing process. If you take like a walk in the woods, yeah, you're not writing right then, and you probably wish you could be writing, but it's part of the process. Well, let's leave our listeners with some final thoughts. And I'm actually going to pick up right where you left off, David, with this suggestion to go for a walk, because that's something that I actually ask students to do in creative writing classes, to go for a walk and to pay attention to what you see, what you hear, what you feel, and take a little notebook with you. And that way you can jot down your ideas, or let's say you prefer to do that on your phone capture things, take pictures, record sounds, capture your thoughts somehow. And then I also have a book recommendation for, and this may work for some, really well for some people, it may not for others. It's called Plot Perfect by Paula Munier. Um, Paula Munier is a um, an agent as well. And I came in contact with her through Writer's Digest um, so this book that she has, I found it interesting that she jumps right into the power of theme as part of the first chapter, because that's something that I, that really resonates with me. It may not be your thing, though. Um, she also goes into your plot in three acts and gives you lots of questions to ask yourself about the plot structure, about your characters, about setting. So check it out. Um, it may just lead you to some insights. So I'm going to just piggyback on Mary really quickly. Stephen King, remember we talked about him having trouble writing himself into a corner with the sand. He said that he got his idea on a walk. So just mm. there's some proof. And the other thing you made me think of as a final thought was that Anne Lamott in Bird by Bird, another wonderful, just kind of a basic craft right yes. book that we all love. You know, she talks about having those little notes, those little scraps of paper. But Mary, you're probably you've made me personally realize the power of taking pictures 
or, t- or recording sounds or finding sounds that are going to. So adding not just the written thoughts and these little bitty notes that I will keep, but, but visual, um, you know, imagery. And, and it's just a whole nother, you've opened up kind of a, another area for me to be inspired by. So thank you for that. And thank I'll you. I, I, yeah. I love hearing yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how I can like top any of that, that you, that you guys just said. Um, I do have a few craft books that I skimmed through when I was in college. And honestly, I should pick up again. One is called Beginnings, Middles and Ends by Nancy Chris. Um, Last name is spelled K-R-E-S-S. And it just goes like over the main plot structure on what we all talked about today and how to like keep your characters on track and keep your writing on track. Again, it was just just a book I had on my shelf and it's been sitting there for a while. I honestly needed to pick it up and read it again, but I just can't get over the getting outside and going for a walk or listening to music. I know there's some people who can't write and listen to music at the same time or can't write and listen to certain music, but there's certain music that really gets me pumped. There was a Spotify playlist called walk like a Badass," And that just, really made me like think of all like the background music that you see in like action movies and stuff. And (laughs) I would listen to that a lot to like get me pumped and get me like in the space of a character. Sights and sounds are really indicative to like get our juices flowing. And even if it's just stepping away from what we're writing and maybe writing something else or taking a break and going outside, you're going to experience something that's going to help you and dreams too. Like I, I, I've come up with some crazy stuff in, in dreams. While we're thinking about dreams, having a journal next to your bed is is a really great strategy. Yeah. Because we we tend to forget most of our dreams when we wake up. And so if it's right there and you want to jot down those thoughts, you're less likely to forget. Final thoughts, anybody? Do what works for you. Yeah, I agree. We all need to be constantly discovering what works for us and adapting and you know, taking down those cork boards or putting more up in my case. Exactly. <laughs> with, with more post-its. This podcast is a project of the Ohio chapter of the Horror Writers Association. For more information about the Ohio chapter, please visit ohiowa.wordpress.com.